0: You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network.
1: We are lucky to have Dr. Michelle Talley here with us today. Dr. Talley has provided diabetes care for over 11 years. During that time, she's developed glycemic protocols for both clinic and hospital use. In addition to being a full-time faculty member here at UAB, she is the lead nurse practitioner and clinical director of the School of Nursing-led PATH Clinic. This clinic provides care to uninsured patients with diabetes using an interprofessional model of care. She is well-versed in the challenges faced by this population and shares her knowledge at the local, state, and national level. Michelle, thanks for being here with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Tracy.
1: So we're taught as nurses and in nursing school that there are two really main types of diabetes. I know it's much more detailed than that, but without getting into the weeds, can you give us an overview of those two main types? Sure. So um, usually we talk about
0: type one and type two diabetes. Um, The majority of the population has type two diabetes. It affects about 90 to 95% of the population. And with type 2 diabetes, there is um, either a deficient or insufficient amount of insulin that is produced by the pancreas, or the insulin is defective in its action, so it can't work effectively. And um, so that's with type 2 diabetes. And the onset is usually very slow and gradual, so that the symptoms of the are not necessarily recognized by the patient because it happens so slowly over time. But with type 1 diabetes, that's a different story. It's a very abrupt onset. It affects about 5 to 10% of the population, so it's not the most common type. That abrupt onset causes the symptoms to come on very quickly, and usually those patients then present to the hospital because they're feeling really bad very quickly.
1: Are those younger patients, type 1, or is there an age difference?
0: Not necessarily. We are finding that you can have... um, Type one at any age, okay, and it just depends kind of on the abruptness and then whether or not um, you have antibodies. Um, there's an autoimmune component to type one, and so you will have antibodies that we can test in the bloodstream to determine what type you are. Unless we have done all that testing, we just assume that you're a type two, that you have type two diabetes.
1: Okay, and type one, they produce no insulin, relatively exactly. no insulin okay. at all. That's right. Okay, interesting. So how do those look? You said the type two was a little more insidious onset, mm-hmm. um, but what do they look like? What would a patient that presented to the hospital um, with an episode what would they look like?
0: Okay, well, typically um, the patients come in and they're very thirsty, they're very hungry, and they'll complain about urinating a lot or very frequently. Um, so. And they're very dehydrated when we, you know, physically look at them. Um, So the, and I'll give you kind of the rationale for that. So when you have um, high levels of blood sugar in the bloodstream, um, the body is going to try to do things to get rid of that blood sugar, and it's in the bloodstream and can't get out because the insulin's not there. Insulin is, um, it's not there to help it, or it's not, it's not able to help it. So insulin is the key that unlocks the door for glucose to get out or sugar to get out of the bloodstream and into the cell. And the cell uses glucose or sugar as energy. So um, the patient becomes very thirsty because as we have these high levels of sugar circulating through the bloodstream, they're excreted um, in the urine that increases the urination, causes someone to be very thirsty. And then they're hungry because literally the the cells of the body are starving. So, um, you know, even though the sugar is in the bloodstream, it can't be utilized. So the patient feels very hungry, and then that just kind of has a snowball effect on the blood sugar when they continue to eat. So they,
1: even though they're eating, they're still hungry. Right. That's correct. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. interesting. So when they present, do they also have fruity breath? Because I remember, it just occurred to me, I remember hearing that long ago. What is that? So that's
0: ketones that are being burned. So in the state of starvation, the body will produce sugar for the body in a, not to get too technical, but the body will produce it for them. It will burn either muscle or fat to produce sugar so that the cells can have some energy. And that produces ketones and so people excrete that ketone those ketones in their urine but also as they breathe or with respiration
1: okay interesting so sometimes patients come to the hospital for other things mm-hmm. that you know they may or may not even know that they have diabetes and they're admitted to the hospital so nurses need to know how to take care of that part of them too what kinds of things would we need to know to take care of a patient with diabetes in the hospital? Okay,
0: I like to think about them in terms of the five I's. That's what helps me remember what they are. So typically um, you can have either high blood sugars that are very high, called diabetic ketoacidosis or hyperosmolar, um, hyperglycemic non-ketotic state. So you can have either one of those uh, acute emergencies that cause a patient to go to the hospital. and tell me, remind me again.
1: Well, once they get there, once what they get things? Yeah, how do we, do you take them off all their meds that they're okay. on, say if they're on meds at home for Thank diabetes? Or- so um,
0: I'll go back to the five eyes. So they may present in those states, either DKA or HHNS, but they would have been, they may be, um, have problems with infection, ischemia, infarction, intoxication, or ignorance. And with the ignorance, I mean not, you know, like intellectual IQ, but actually they didn't know what to do to treat the problem. Or they may be unaware that they even have diabetes. So when they come to the hospital, um, if they were newly diagnosed, we would certainly start treating them for the diabetes when they arrived. But if they were already a diabetic or a patient with diabetes who Mm -hmm. came to the hospital, then we always take them off of their oral medications because many of the oral medications interact with some of the radi- radiology tests that we use dye for. And so we want to take them off. The safest thing for the patient is to take them off the oral medications and place them on insulin. So as a bedside nurse or nurse um, caring for patients in the hospital with diabetes, you're typically going to be dealing with insulin. So the more knowledgeable, knowledgeable you are
1: with that, then the better you know, care you can provide. We talked a little bit about the protocols that you developed um, for certain hospitals. Is that something that the nurse would follow? Is that a common thing to have in a hospital and is it pretty strict?
0: Absolutely, so it is very common. Um, there are very various protocols that are out there and each hospital has a usually adopted and adapted their own protocol to work within their own facility. And they have those for the intensive care units, um, typically for um, surgical patients as well, for patients coming in for procedures, but also for patients who are on the floor. Um, or in the you know step-down units um, where they would maybe prescribe subcutaneous insulin, um, so either IV or
1: subcutaneous forms. I've heard you mention before that managing care of patients with diabetes is both an art and a science, mm-hmm. and I think that comes into play here. Um, what considerations would the nurses need to to have in that? And what do you mean by it's an art? Okay.
0: So the science and what I, what I talk about when I talk about diabetes as being a science is that there are certain things we know, the pathology of diabetes, what it, complications that can occur, but also the evidence-based treatment plans that are there. And those are annually updated in the Diabetes Care Journal every year for um, Healthcare providers, and they're called the standards of medical care for diabetes. So we can go to those and get the evidence-based protocols and things that we, should, we can use for patients, but it doesn't always fit every patient. So um, we use those to help us, but then the art comes into play. So we wanna keep the patient at the center of the care. So you've gotta use the art there to figure out what it is they're willing to do as a participant in their own care and how you can kind of meet in the middle. So you may know that someone may need four shots a day or the best way to get control may be four shots a day. But if they come in and they're scared of giving themselves an injection, then you might say, okay, I know you're going from giving yourself no injections, to I want you to give some, are you willing to give yourself two right now instead of four? And if you are, then we can, instead of using a basal bolus method um, to give insulin, with just the four shots a day, we can have them do use mixed insulin and give two shots a day. So there are different things that we can do to help um, keep the patient at the
1: center of the care and help them be successful, honestly, with their care. You mentioned specific patient populations, like one going to surgery. So it might be that they are scheduled to not eat or drink anything. Mm -hmm. So what happens if a nurse has an order to give insulin, but the patient hasn't eaten anything and and they're thrown off of their schedule? How do we manage that? What advice do you give to nurses? So... You know, as a nurse, it
0: is um, within your realm to always have critical thinking Mm -hmm. and use your critical thinking skills when you're looking at orders for patients to determine if it's the safest thing for the patient. So if there is an order for insulin that hasn't um, been discontinued or held and the patient is going or hasn't been changed and the patient is going for surgery, then that is something you need to communicate with the healthcare provider. Call them and say, hey, listen, this patient's going for surgery. You know, I noticed that the insulin is ordered at the same amount, um, you know, that it was yesterday. What would you like me to do with that? Or the blood sugar is is 80 today and they have the, the regular amount ordered and um, I noticed they're having a procedure later and then, you know, what would you like me to do with that? So really utilizing their critical thinking skills is what I would encourage nurses to do as they determine whether or not it's safest for the patient to receive what's ordered. Um, And so, you know, the biggest fear I think that a lot of nurses have is um, hypoglycemia or low blood sugars for the patients. And that's certainly the biggest fear that anyone providing care to patients has, nurses, healthcare providers who prescribe it, or even the patient themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, so trying to avoid those times when hypoglycemia would be at highest risk is what I would encourage nurses to do, patients to do. So the more knowledgeable you are about how to balance the diet um, and the medications, how to monitor to help you make those decisions, and then keeping in mind exercise and other things that may come into play would be things I would have someone, uh, whether it be the patient or the nurse, remember as you're taking care
1: of a patient with diabetes. In today's healthcare system, there are really nice things for patients like concierge menu ordering. Mm-hmm. How does that <laughs> affect what we're trying to do in, in managing these this, these kinds of patients?
0: That is that takes a lot of um, thinking through because that is something that threw us for a loop at first I when bet. it was offered. So You know, patients now have the ability to call and order meals anytime they want, which is not a problem unless you have diabetes. And it's actually not a problem if you have diabetes. It's just the nurses and the patients need to work together in their care. So let me give you an example. So a patient may um, be gone for a procedure and they've been NPO, but they come back at 10 a.m. and they want to have breakfast. So they order breakfast and breakfast is served. Before they eat, the nurse should be checking the blood sugar because that's considered, you know, the the fasting blood sugar, right, Right. and then allow the patient to eat and give the insulin as well that's ordered for for the meal, the mealtime insulin. And then if the patient wants to eat again at 12 noon, well, that's okay. And they're going to order their food. They're going to get it. But the nurse needs to then work with the patient again to determine, do I give the same, you know, the whole dose of the mealtime insulin? Perhaps I shouldn't because the duration of the the mealtime insulin that I gave at breakfast or at ten AM is still there. You know, it it's lasting four to six yeah. hours. So if I give it at ten and I turn around and give it at twelve, I'm gonna have a little too much insulin maybe on board than I than normally is anticipated. So working through and troubleshooting, problem solving and troubleshooting is what's necessary to keep
1: keep the patient um, safe and avoiding the hypoglycemia. It sounds like there's a lot of planning and communication that needs to happen, specifically with these patients, maybe even more so than than all of our patients. But um, communication with the patient and the patient communicating with the nurse and getting everybody on the same page, which can maybe be hard. Right, to do. It does take,
0: you know, I think uh, it does take a lot of, may take a lot of time for the yeah. bedside nurse. I know a lot of times, you know, that's Um, a concern that we hear is that it takes a lot of time to check the blood sugar, give the insulin, time it with the meal. Um, But the more familiar you are with your hospital's formulary of the medications that you're going to be giving and the more well-versed you are on their duration, their onset, their action, um, then the better decisions you can make. And then it becomes kind of a no-brainer for you.
1: It is a little bit, uh, especially for maybe a newer nurse or a nurse that's not used to taking care of those kinds of patients, it can be a little daunting and, and scary. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, being a newer nurse and, and being charged with taking care of those kinds of patients. So um, what if I mess up? What if I give too much insulin or not enough and all of a sudden I'm kind of in trouble? What happens then?
0: So I love to always share this with people. Um, there's an antidote. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I mean, I talked about this <laughs> yeah. balance earlier between diet and, and um, medication and exercise. And the antidote, if you have a too high of a blood sugar, is to give insulin, okay? And if it's too low, if your blood sugar is too low, we'll give sugar. So there's always a balance you're trying to achieve, and there's always an antidote, especially for the patient in the hospital. So let's say that you accidentally gave um, a little bit too much insulin. You wanna communicate that to the healthcare provider. Let them know, be upfront. Listen, mm-hmm. I gave them double the dose or whatever that they should have had. I gave them you know, more than they should have had. What should I, can I do? Mm-hmm. And they'll usually give you an order to check the blood sugars more frequently, but also think about it. You could, you know, the physician, the nurse practitioner may order PA. They may order dextrose. And a continuous drip to hang because you're giving the patient then continuous sugar right. um, through the IV for to fix kind of the the over over not dose but the over um, giving right. of the insulin that you gave too much. So there's always an antidote, and that's what I love about it. And it you know you, if you communicate and you get experts involved, mm-hmm. and and a lot of times you'll have a diabetes expert on your your unit then um, just communicating and trying to figure out what you can do to help fix the situation,
1: if well, that, you will. Yeah, that'll make them feel better, for sure. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, I thought this was really important, in, if a patient, you know, they may have had diabetes for years and years, and now they're admitted to the hospital, they're a great resource, too.
0: Absolutely, because they are the experts in their own care, right? So, you know, what, um, you know, they'll know, they'll say, oh, I, I can't eat pizza because it makes my blood sugar go sky high. So can I get, you know, a hamburger steak instead? So they'll be able to help provide you with details. Or they may say, you know, um, that 56 units is the dose that I usually give myself one time a day, and you're bringing it in to me at mealtime. And those are things kind of should send a red flag up to you as the nurse. Well, wait a minute. Let me go back and check that and make sure that I've got the right the right amount of insulin, because insulin is one of the high um, and the most frequently um, erred medicines. Oh. So, um, you know, always getting someone to double check your doses, checking with the patient, you know, they're
1: the expert in their own care. So talking with them about it. Yeah, I think that's so important and such a vital resource that maybe we forget about. Like, hey, Mr. Jones, how much insulin do you take at home? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great person to ask, right? Right, <laughs> right. Um, so, we have a question from our audience. Are there any common medications that people with diabetes should be careful about taking? So there are, there are always um,
0: medications if you have other conditions that you should be, uh, I say you should be mindful of, but really that's the responsibility of whoever's prescribing the medication. So. You know, as long as you've shared with your physician, your pharmacist, your nurse practitioners, your PAs, your chronic conditions, or your other comorbid conditions, maybe that are associated with diabetes, there are certain medications you may want to avoid. And I'll give you the um, an example. Someone with heart failure may want to avoid certain classes of drugs okay. because it may. Um, you know, worsen um, the symptoms. Um, There are drugs like beta blockers um, that are typically used for cardiovascular disease, which is very common in patients who have diabetes, but they also can mask some of the hypoglycemic symptoms and signs. So certainly there are medications. Um, And as long as you're communicating again with your, your healthcare provider and pharmacist of your chronic conditions and problems, they can help choose the one that's best for you.
1: I would imagine it's important for people taking herbal supplements. I think we forget about those a lot too. Absolutely. So Absolutely. always communicate that as mm-hmm. well. Um, so let's switch just a little bit because I love when you talk about the, per- the patient perspective and the patient being that center of care. Um, what do you do for a newly diagnosed person with, with diabetes? You know, you have to tell them that this is what they've got and this is now their kind of lifestyle? How do you even begin with that?
0: So I usually, again, start with a conversation about diet, (laughs) about exercise, um, you know, taking their medications, monitoring their blood sugars. We talk about ways to reduce their risk Of long-term complications, but also short-term complications. So things that will land them in the hospital, or so those are the extremely high blood sugars or the really low blood sugars. We talk about um, you know the reducing the risk, the problem solving, and what I mean by that in problem solving is what to do if their sugars drop, what to do if you're sick, if you have the flu, if your fever is high. You want to increase, you know. You may not, uh, you want to increase your fluids. You want to test more frequently. If you have a GI bug, um, you know, you're going to want to test more frequently as well. But you may not be able to hold down food. So how what type of liquids do you need to drink? And those are important things to teach the patient. Um, And also healthy coping skills, I think are very important um, because there is a distress associated with diabetes. So you've got a patient who's never had to take care of themselves before in this manner. They're not having to watch how many carbohydrates they eat at each meal. They're not having to give themselves injections of insulin or take pills for to help their blood sugars they're they're not used to doing those things so it changes their entire routine and their activities honestly throughout the day and so you're trying to find and help them physically take care of themselves but also emotionally and mentally take care of themselves so it's very important to Let them be aware, you know, reach out for help when you feel like you need some help um, because this is a chronic condition that you're going to be dealing with and it takes a lot of adjustments. So it sounds like it affects every facet of of their lives.
1: Absolutely. Home,
0: work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, uh, just touched on it earlier when we were talking, um, you know, if they cannot give themselves four injections or what if they are afraid of needles what kind of strategies do you do you do to help modify mm-hmm. what their treatment plan will be and make it specific to that individual
0: okay so i again come communicate what are you willing to do and i have a com- don't tell me what i want to hear tell me what you're willing to do let's be honest here because i'm here to help you i think that's so important i'm here to help you mm-hmm. but you've got to let me know what you're willing to do in this you know in this care so and two in involving the family or the social the social support that they have is so very important so there is a hereditary component to type 2 diabetes and type 1 to some degree and so it's if you if you involve the family and the social support their social support in their care it helps reduce the other people's risks of you know of getting it later but it also Take some of that burden, that distress off of the patient. So if they're fearful of needles, why can't the teenage son or daughter help them prick their finger and test the blood sugar? We can teach them how to do that. You know, can the you know, the significant other, the spouse, can they give an injection when they're together with the with the patient, if they're at home at night, maybe then the patient's only responsible for giving himself or herself one. So just kind of modifying things to involve others in the care, because it's a win-win, and mm-hmm. they kind of learn it, learn how to reduce their risk and how to manage the disease, but also help
1: take the burden off the patient. Sounds like a lifestyle change for everyone. Absolutely. Everyone at the house. Mm-hmm. If, if it works out well, then right. that will help a lot. What's the hardest thing for patients?
0: I think one of the hardest things it they think when they have diabetes, they can't have sugar anymore.
1: Mm.
0: Okay. So I don't like, that's one of the first things I say there, you know, don't change everything to sugar-free, you know, just
1: really interesting.
0: You, it's a balance. Mm -hmm. So it's diet, exercise activity, you know, monitoring your blood sugars, giving your medications. So i let them have them, but have them in moderation. So yeah, still have your cake and cookies, but maybe your cake is reserved for birthdays, you know, only, um, if you only have, you know, if, not if you're celebrating them every day. Right. <laughs> but if you're celebrating, <laughs> not every once every day, but um, you know, every now and then, it's fine. You just have to account for that. Um, it's like putting money in your checking account and re- withdrawing money. You want to keep, you know, keep check of those things. So if you have cake at lunch, um, maybe at lunch, then you would have just um, either protein and the fat but avoid the other carbohydrates besides the small piece of cake. And then you can have that cake and it, you know, may work well with um, keeping your carbohydrates Mm -hmm. consistent. So that's one of the things I think, um, it's hardest for people to, there's, they naturally assume I can't have sugar and that's terrible. And this is awful. Um, and then the fear of needles, I think is the other thing. If they're just even in sticking and pricking their finger, Mm -hmm. it's
1: hard. What do you say about labeling patients as noncompliant? And I ask if I already know the answer, but yeah. I want you to tell everyone, you know, what, what, is, what does that mean when we do that and how is that not the best idea? So it's,
0: it's probably my biggest pet peeve because um, when patients have diabetes, um, you know, you really... I hate to label someone as being noncompliant because, unless you really do a deep dive and dig a little deeper to find out what they know and what they don't know, what they have had access to, you can't really say that for sure. And in my experience, the majority of the time, the patients are not noncompliant they just have other things that help determine their care. We know those as social determinants of care. Um, you know, do they have access to diabetes care? Do they have access to the medications? Medications and the treatment for diabetes, it's extremely costly. So do they have the finances to take care of themselves, the, you know, the resources? Do they have um, the health literacy that's needed? You know, do they know um, about medications and the side effects, what is normal to You know, what is normal with a certain medication? It is normal to have diarrhea with metformin. So, Mm -hmm. you know, communicating that with patients, but letting them know that's kind of that health literacy thing. So social determinants of of health are extremely important. Um, And not everyone has access to diabetes education classes. If you don't have insurance, that's not something that's frequently offered, you know, for free. So you have to find those resources to help patients. So I really... You know, if, if someone is not doing what they you think they, quote, should, um, that requires a little bit deeper dive. I think that's the, you know, you really need to care about them doing better. So asking those those questions, do you have food? Do you, you know, are you able to get food? Um, and I know food is, healthy food is expensive. So let's work together and try to find some solutions for cheaper foods that may that the diet that we'd like you to adhere to.
1: Where do patients find resources if they if they can't afford to go to a class or something? Is there online resources accessible to patients and their family
0: members? Absolutely, and um, there are a lot of resources. As a matter of fact, many of the resources have the patient um, education materials as well as healthcare providers. Okay, they have information and they have them in several different languages, and you can print the, um, the copies and the resources they have. So the American Diabetes Association is one that have, um, site, website that has a lot of um, resources there, as well as the American Association of Diabetes Educators. There are many others. There are apps for patients if they have smartphones that they can download to help manage their blood sugars. Mm-hmm. Family members can help and do that. There are games that people can play to help with education, and um, there's just a lot of creative ways that people can
1: learn. And what if a nurse wants to be wants to go to the next level or be a a, a specialist in diabetes care? Is that is that a pathway that some nurses could take? Absolutely. <clears throat> um, there are two um,
0: ways that you can kind of certify. One is through diabetes education. One is through um, being an advanced diabetes manager or management so there are those two board certifications that um, either in nurses nurse practitioners that sort of thing can go and, and do in addition a lot of hospitals will have um, scholars programs for diabetes or what somebody on the on their um, in their unit considered a diabetes champion so somebody that's kind of the expert and they'll identify those on particular units or floors and that's your go-to person. So there are a lot of resources that I think are available, you know, as well to help with that.
1: So that's interesting. Maybe, so nurses at at various hospitals could ask if they have such a person. And would that be someone you could call when you've got your patient admitted and you find out that they have diabetes and... That would be a good resource Mm -hmm. for them, I guess, Mm -hmm. right? And
0: it's usually somebody that's, um, you know, been trained in diabetes and um, with more than just kind of what they've done in school or whatever. They've gone to some additional classes or have a lot of CEUs in that area. And they're there to kind of help provide support to, to the nurses and patients, but mostly for nurses.
1: Well, I, we are about to wrap it up. We've only got about a minute left. So I just want you to leave us with, you know, a takeaway or something really important that you want to make sure that we get across to everyone today.
0: Okay. I would probably say, um, you know, diabetes is a actually a, a very big problem in Alabama and in the southeastern states. It's very um, commonly associated with obesity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, type 2 is. And, um, you know, I think as a state and as a profession, we need to really be mindful of ways that we can impact the disease or reduce the complications from it. So really getting knowledgeable about it to impact and help the care of patients.
1: Great, thank you so much for being here. a great discussion with a lot of practical tips for, for nurses, patients, and family members of, of those patients. So thank we really you. appreciate you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash c forward slash nursing network.